Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Making your cat happy is a number one priority. Priority number two is keeping a clean litter box. Fresh Step Outstretch Litter helps you do both. Fresh Step Outstretch Litter traps waste at the surface with less crumbles and absorbs more waste and odor compared to Fresh Step Multicat. Find Fresh Step Outstretch Litter at a store near you today. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revolution took one point Saturday night in a hard-fought 1-1 draw against Toronto FC. The game had chances few and far between, with both teams botching what few chances they could find. However, following TFC breaking through in the 74th minute, Gustavo Bo came to the rescue once again, scoring in the 86th minute and giving the Revs a crucial point, uh, which keeps them in sixth place sixth place in the Eastern Conference standings. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today, the miraculous return of Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? I feel like I'm shaking the rust off this morning. It's been so long. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the last time we were on, neither of us were married, and now we're both married. So just to kind of uh, show how much time has passed since we were doing one of these together, um, yeah, it's it's certainly been a, been a while. So hopefully you aren't too, too rusty. Hopefully your insight is uh, sharp as always. But well, I, I was going to uh, make Sean, a joke about this being like the first podcast with two married guys, but you had Seth on last week, so you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that, is, that is true. That is true. Um well, Sean, what was your key takeaway from last night's uh, draw against Toronto? I mean, I think it's really that the Revolution offense needs to find more than just the, the Gustavo Bowen and Carles Gill connection to to get some goals in the back of the net. Um, you know, Bo tried to do everything himself in this game for for most of it. He had seven shots. I thought Bo had a really good game, uh, except it seemed like he kind of forgot his shooting boots for this one. Um, with some of the goals we've seen him score. Uh, you kind of expect him to to have some great shots on net, and we've seen him score some crackers, and he had some you know some good opportunities in this ones where um, his his shooting boost just let him down, and even the goal he scored, he didn't really hit that cleanly uh, and, and got a bit lucky. So it seemed like he was doing everything well in this game for the most part, um, but the, the shots kind of let him down, and and when they were letting him down, the, his teammates didn't really pick him up again, even though he scored the equalizer on a, a bit of a lucky shot. 
Um, I, I didn't think Aguadelo provided enough up top. I didn't think you know Juan Caicedo off the bench uh, did enough when playing in you know, whatever it was, 24 minutes or so. Um, so you know it was just a little bit disappointing at the Revolution going into a game against Toronto FC where kind of everything was in their favor and that you know Josie Altidore was out for this one. Uh, they got very lucky. We'll talk about it later with with Matt Turner staying on for all 90 minutes. Um, but it was just you know the refs of the Revolution team didn't do enough. Christian Pania, you know, had a couple moments, but again, um, we've, we've seen so much from these guys in, in past years before uh, Carles Heel and, and Gustavo Bo joined the team, but in this game, it seemed like there was over-reliance on them, and we've, we've seen it in a few games, and, you know, teams know that, and teams marked them pretty well. They were pretty tightly marked on a lot of occasions, even when they had some good passing combinations, um, but, you know, when you're playing a good team like Toronto, it, it, I think you need just a little bit more than that, and you need more contributions from your, you know, your other role players on the team. Yeah, and outside of shots that came from Gustavo Bo, I'm trying to think of the big chances that the Revs had. There was the play with um, Carlos Heel where he tried to tap it, and Westberg made a, an amazing save where Juan Agadello kind of chips the defense, and Carlos Heel volleys it. Um, and as I say, that was probably their best chance of the night. There was also a play where Juan Agadello um, uh, kind of scuffed a shot. Christian Pena kind of either heads the ball in or kind of knocks the ball back towards him uh, around the six yard box. And Agadello can't get a clean boot on it. And he kind of just taps the ball to the keeper outside of that. Everything else came from Gustavo bow. Um, and it is a little concerning about how over-reliant they are on him. So, so quickly into his uh, MLS career, eight games in. Um, but at the same time, I also think that, you know, Gustavo bow fires rockets off of his foot. Um, I mean, he didn't have the most accurate game, as you said, but uh, a lot of those sh- shots had velocity on him. And on that goal, I mean, it was right at the keeper, but it was coming in a little bit quick. Um, you can kind of see that obviously the keeper was a little off guard and I don't think was expecting a shot that quickly. Turf um, helps. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we said last week, you know, if you're going to give Gustavo Bo, Bo six, seven, eight shots a game, which they did yesterday. He had four shots in the first half and three in the second half. You know, he, he's probably going to find the net eventually because he's going to have a rocket and one of them is going to take, you know, a side of the net or is going to be somewhere that the keeper can't reach. Um, so they did get a little bit lucky yesterday. But, um, yeah, outside of Gustavo Bo, not, not that it's a bad thing that he's given se- give seven shots a game, but it, it was disappointing to see uh, Juan Agadello not, you know, return to that striker position very well. Um, I thought he had a pretty poor game up top. Um, Christian Pena played okay. Uh, he did have two chances created. He had some moments, but he was pretty inconsistent throughout the game. Um, and Carlos Hill uh, created four chances. Again, not a terrible game, not kind of what we expect from him overall. But, um, yeah, it, it seemed like the offense was lacking a little bit for the first time. In a, in a while, I, I can't think of any game in the Bruce Arena era where the offense just seemed totally out of it. And it seemed like, too, until that Toronto FC goal, um, you know, in the second half, it just seemed like they were dwindling more and more and they had less and less momentum as the game went on. I don't know if it was a confidence thing or what, but um, Bruce Arena said after the game they weren't good enough. And I, I think that's an understatement, to say the least. So um, I think the Revs got away with uh, one point. Uh, they got away with the draw, uh, but uh, they need to be a lot better next week going into uh, New York City. Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely – I think you have to call that a lucky draw, right? The, the, the Revolution got away with one there um, because they should have been down a man at halftime. Well, yeah, well, yes, yeah. I th- <laughs> Thankfully, they did not go to VAR on that one. Um, 
yeah, and you're talking about the play with Matt Turner where I forget who was chasing that ball down, but someone on Toronto FC uh, has a long pass going forward. Um, they're called offsides and they don't go to VAR to review it. it it's kind of questionable. It's not a clear um, and obvious error. So I'm, I'm not sure if it would be overturned either way. But, um, you know, one player on Toronto is through and Matt Turner comes out of net, gets beaten and clearly clips him. Uh, I, I think he clearly gets him in the leg a little bit. And that probably would have been a red card. And I think the game would have been significantly different. Not only are the, the revs down a man, but Matt Turner made a number of really solid saves in the second half. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would say that the revs got a little bit lucky in the first half, not getting a red card off. Uh, they got lucky with Matt Turner making uh, three or four more, more good saves this week. Uh, he seems to have kept them in the game. Uh, and then, yeah, they got lucky with Westberg making a huge, huge error in the 86th minute there that gave them the goal. So, um, yeah, this isn't exactly a performance you want to see from the revs, but we'll happily take the result. So I, I really don't understand what happened on that, on that red card play because it's, it's one of those things where when you're talking about VAR, um, you know, you hedge towards if you're, you know, assistant referee, you hedge towards not calling the offside when it's, you know, a, a really close call. And I think, um, you know, Paul Mariner convinced me that he was onside on that play. Um, you know, when you look at the lines, it, it did look like he probably was onside. Um, so I'm not really sure in the age of VAR, you know, why that flag went up so soon. Um, and then at the same time, you know, one of the complaints about the era of the, the you know, the, the, the VAR era is that, you know, somebody's going to get hurt when you don't call an offsides and they called the offside there, but the play continued anyways. And the guy got taken out by Matt Turner. So it seemed like just about everything that could possibly go wrong on the refereeing side on that play went wrong. Um, but it all went in favor of the revolution who, uh, you know, really got away with one there because, you know, Matt Turner took the guy out to me. That was a, you know, denying an obvious goal scoring opportunity. It was outside the box. So it wouldn't have been a penalty kick, but because it was outside the box and it would have been a penalty kick, that means it would have been a red card. Um, you know, if you have the rule change, so if it was inside the box and you know, he was going for the ball, it would be a yellow card and a penalty kick, but because it was outside the box, it would be no penalty kick, uh, and a red card. So then the revolution would have been without Matt Turner who really was kind of the hero of this match later on with some of the saves that he made. Um, so it was you know, very fortunate for the Revs and disappointing that they perhaps didn't play a bit better given they were playing Toronto without one of their best players in Altador. Yeah, yeah. And at home, I think this was a game that you want to take all three points and really solidify your, part, your, your spot in the standings above Toronto. But um, with the results elsewhere in MLS, the Red Bulls losing, um, with Montreal losing, you know, the results were satisfactory, I think, from the Revs' standpoint. They're maintaining sixth place. I don't think this hurt them th- this night hurt them too too much. But you're right, uh, a really disappointing performance in a, in a game where if you take all three points from Toronto, um, you know your playoff odds go up significantly. Uh, so, and and four of the remaining six games in the schedule are road games. They have to play NYCFC twice. Um, they, they have some opposing, some difficult fixtures coming up. So I think this was a game that they wanted all three points from. So um, very, very disappointing overall. The one thing I will say, too, going back to that red card plate, was did the flag go up immediately or was it a delayed flag? I, I honestly didn't see it. Based on the, the commentary, I was under the impression that it went up immediately. Um, but I'm not sure. Up, yeah, I thought it went up late. Which begs the question, if you're not going to go to VAR and th- if you're throwing up the flag up late and you're not going to go to VAR, why not just throw it up right away? Um, you know, it, it so I, I don't know. It, I'm, I, refereeing in MLS has gotten very, very uh, questionable <laughs> in recent years, which is saying a lot because it was already very, very questionable in previous years. I wish we had Jake on this week because I just don't understand what happened with that play. Because like, like you said, if you're going to 
you know, put the flag up and not go to VAR. Why don't you blow the play dead and, and not risk having right. a guy get injured? Well, then the referee goes over and talks about it a little bit. And so, I mean, maybe they maybe he had someone in his ear. There was about a minute delay. And I was I thought they actually had gone to VAR because there was such a delay. Um, but maybe he was listening in to see if it should go to VAR. And they said, no, it's it's not going to go to VAR. Um, and I, I think that's based on the it wasn't a clear and obvious error logic. Um, and that's why they didn't go there. But it was very close. I mean, if that assistant linesman does not put up their uh, flag, I, Matt, Matt Turner's off. If you know, because I think you could make just as strong of an ar- argument that it was onside as much as it was offside. I, I think there weren't any really good angles that were definitive. Um, so it, it was a clear and obvious. It was a clear and obvious error by the Revolution defense. <laughs> there were a few, there were a few of those. There were a few of those uh, yesterday, but um, well, and and that'll take me to my uh, my key takeaway, which I don't think we need to go into uh, much detail. We've already talked about it a lot, but Matt Turner really kept them in that game yesterday. He was by far the man of the match for me. Um, that double save in the second half was just spectacular. Um, he had three or four uh, saves that um, really would have been backbreakers for uh, the revolution if he gave them up. And and even on the goal that was conceded, which he could do absolutely nothing about, um, he made a save from point-blank range. Um, I, I, Matt Turner is proving his worth week in and week out. And, you know, one stat that I bring up all the time is expected goals versus goals allowed differential um, which I can't explain for the life of me. But uh, if you've been listening for a few weeks, you know that um, based on algorithm, algorithms, there are expected goals allowed. Uh, and, and there's a stat for keepers, which is basically just the difference between um, what keepers are expected to concede and what they actually do concede. Matt Turner leads MLS in that category. Um, and he's been improving that number four or five weeks in a row. And I would imagine he's going to improve that number again uh, this week, um, which doesn't necessarily mean he's the best keeper in MLS. It just means he's probably having the best season. Um, but another thing to mention is that, you know, the more expected goals allowed you have against you, that that's also a reflection of your defense. And I know a lot is made up of, you know, since Bruce Arena took charge, the defense, uh, you know, has conceded so few goals. And that's kind of been a, a you know, counterpoint against the people that say we need to improve the back line. But Sean, as you said, this back line yesterday really let Matt Turner down a number of times. Um, and I, I think they got lucky, you know, a few times. The the play that all stands out to me is Michael Mantien just flat out falling down. Uh, and Dewan Jones makes a incredible recovery run, comes back, uh, and he actually makes the sliding block on that play. Um, uh, uh, so Matt Turner didn't have to do a whole lot there. Uh, but it was still very, very sloppy defense all the way around. And, um, you know, on that goal too, wide open person on the back post. Um, seemed like no one really was paying attention to. You know, there's two guys running into the box, and somehow Andrew Farrell is the only one back on that play. Um, I think this defense is really giving Matt Turner a lot to uh, have to cover for, and so far he's been doing a spectacular job. Well, there were a lot of plays in this game. I, at least I noticed where Brandon By was caught forward, and it really caught the Revolution out and, and down in numbers when the you know there was a counterattack by Toronto FC. Toronto, I thought, had a lot of success counterattacking. Um, and a lot of that, to me at least, was because Brandon By got caught forward. And there was you know some plays where, it, you know, to me at least, didn't look like he was 
putting in a you know full sprint to get back and, and help out. Um, I don't know how much of that again is designed by Bruce Arena wanting to push Brandon Bay up. I, you know, certainly it hasn't changed from under Brad Friedel as far as the way Brandon Bay has been playing under under Friedel too. He pushed way up, um, but it, 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 to me, and we've talked about this before, so I won't go too deep into it. But um, it, it almost seems like it's costing the Revolution more. Um, by him being pushed forward, then it's then it's helping them out with him getting forward. And, and there's just time and time again where there was a counterattack by Toronto FC and, and Brandon by not being back there really stretched the revolution. Yeah, and including on that goal, um, that's Brandon By's side of the field. And if you go back and look at the replay, let me know if you can see Brandon By because I don't see him anywhere on the field. There are times he's up there and he's really playing a right wing, right midfield position where he's kind of down the corner and looking to get one of those low crosses in. And, you know, to the Revs' credit, it worked last week with the goal to Wilfred Zahibo. Um, but you're right. There's a lot of plays where he's out of position. Dewan Jones also, too, pushes up and gets out of position. It's the same thing that Edgar Castillo does. Um, but Dewan Jones has such blazing speed, he's able to get back and, and recover at, uh, at certain points. So, um, yeah, Brandon Bay really does not get back. And I think a lot of the times, too, I talked about this a little bit last week, is that Wilfred Zahibo and Luis Caicedo do a really good job of covering for those outside backs. You'll notice on the goal, this was after Wilfred Zahibo came out for Juan Agadello. Um, and I think that Juan Agadello is not as good of a defensive player as Caicedo and as uh, Wilfred Zahibo. And it seems like him not getting back there, Michael Mancien kind of being caught in no man's land, uh, all of that kind of, and, and of course, Brandon by being pushed up the field, all that leads to Andrew Farrell having two guys to cover uh, by himself. And that leads to a wide open chance for Toronto FC. Um, so yeah, they seem to be pretty convinced of letting Bryant Brandon by run up the field um, and get those low crosses in. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with it as long as you have a good defensive midfield pairing. Um, I think when you have Juan Agadello in the defensive midfield uh, or in the central midfield or Diego Fagundes, for that matter, um, you're going to have to keep Brandon Bay back a little bit. Um, but I, I also think, too, that that was just a matter of Bruce playing for three points and being aggressive uh, and knowing that one point doesn't help them out as much as three points. Uh, and, and I think that was just kind of a risk reward thing at the end of the day. Uh, but I agree with your uh, statement about Brandon Bay. Also weird to me that Brandon Bay didn't attempt a single tackle the whole game. But that's another yeah, story. But he, he, yeah, he didn't seem to be. I mean, he was pushing up the field the whole game. I'll, I'll have to look and see if there's a heat map. But I mean, he was. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was as much of a winger as he was a, a right back last night. So yeah, he he won he won zero aerial duels, had zero tackles, zero blocks, zero clearances. Uh, one interception, but that was the only defensive action he had the entire game, which is interesting for a defender. Yep. Well, let's while we're talking about outside backs, Sean, uh, we haven't talked to you since Edgar Castillo went out and Dewan Jones has come back in. I think that's one spot that a lot of Revs fans wanted to see uh, or one sub made uh, over the season. A lot of people got tired of Edgar Castillo and they wanted to see the rookie kind of filling at left back. And through a few games uh, to Dewan Jones' credit, he's actually played very, very well, I felt. Um, yesterday, another pretty solid performance. Uh, he had one shot off target, 31 for 38 passing. That's 82%. He was four for six in the attacking third. Uh, so he, he wasn't pushing up as much as he has in recent weeks. Uh, but 
regardless. Uh, he did have one chance created. He had six ball recoveries. He was two for six on tackles, which is a weak spot for him. Uh, he's still not the most defensively um, tuned, I would say. But uh, but he did have uh, a number of great recovery runs uh, covering for Mancian on that play. I mentioned he has had two blocks and two clearances. He also had a blocked cross in this game. So, um, you know, pretty solid game all the way around for Dewan Jones. Uh, Sean, I want your assessment about uh, Dewan Jones and, and what you think of him at left back so far. Yeah, I thought overall he played well. Um, you know, to me, he kind of does what you want Brandon Bay to do, but does it a bit better. And part of that is, as you mentioned earlier, he's he's faster. Not that Bay is slow by any stretch of the imagination, but um, he's really able to use his speed to recover when he gets back. I mean, I, I'm not sure that um, on the left side is his crossing ability is you know good enough to contribute that way on offense. Um, but you know, he he does a lot of things pretty well. And as a you know, 22 year old rookie. Um, I think there's room for improvement, and I think he's you know capable of improving in long term. He, this could be the position for him. <laughs> the the one thing that I, I called out to you when we were you know watching the game was uh, I think that play later in the second half where he actually got outpaced um, by I, f- I forget who it was Lorea from uh, Lorea, Toronto yeah. I believe yeah and, and, and right back yeah and seeing seeing Dewan Jones you know kind of even positioning with him and then getting outpaced was a bit surprising because not many people can outpace Jawan Jones. But uh, outside of that, I thought he played a pretty good game. Um, you know, like with Brandon Bay, he's being asked to push up a lot. But unlike with Brandon Bay, I think more often than not, he manages to kind of get back and influence the play. Um, sometimes that's, you know, because a guy like Mancian or Farrell slows down the play and gives him time to get back. Um, but, you know, sometimes they do that with Brandon Bay and Brandon Bay doesn't get back. So um, I, I think I like what I'm seeing from Dewan Jones on the left more so than what I'm seeing from the other fullback position. Uh, but obviously, he's a rookie, and there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't teach speed, and, and Dewan Jones has that in, in bunches, and uh, that's a huge thing to have as a fullback. Should be mentioned, too, that Lorea was the uh, player that took the ball from Mancian when Mancian fell down, and Dewan Jones caught up to him in the first half. So a bit of an even draw between those two in this game. Um, but, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Dewan Jones is incredibly athletic, and I, I think uh, – Seth said it last week where, you know, what Dwan Jones lacks in defensive instincts, he makes up for in his athleticism. Uh, and I think Dwan Jones, you know, we've seen week after week kind of make up and, and kind of be a pest to players that are trying to create separation and beat him down the wing. And, and they just can't do it um, outside of Lorea last night. So um, I do have some concerns about his crossing ability. Dewan Jones can push up and get into that corner. That's great. But when he's down there, you know, what can he do? I don't think he's much of a threat to cross into the box. Whereas Brandon by at least can drive in some low crosses and kind of find the feet of someone every now and then. So yeah, I, I think he's going to be fine in the near term. I will be a little concerned if we go into the playoffs and we're playing at Atlanta and Dewan Jones is starting at left back. Cause I'm, I'm not totally sure if, he still seems to be a bit of a weak spot defensively, um, but as I say, he makes up for it with athleticism. I, I just am worried that when we get some tougher opponents, um, he might not be up for the test. But then again, we could say the exact same thing about Edgar Castillo. Uh, so um, there's a bit of a pro and con where Dewan Jones brings athleticism, Edgar Castillo brings the ability to cross and create something offensively. Um, yeah, there, there isn't really a, a huge um one way or the other with those two but so far i'm a really a big fan of dewan jones and uh, really excited to see him progress in the left back role 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you're playing a pacey winger, you definitely would rather have Dewan Jones out there than Castillo at this point. Um, but, but like you said, I, I would have concerns with either of them in a tough playoff matchup. Um, Jones, just because of his inexperience and you know not really being a defender, um, and Castillo, just because of what we've seen this season, where defensively he's you know been a weakness at times. And one other uh, major change in this lineup uh, yesterday was Juan Agudelo moving back to center forward in this game. Uh, lately, we've been seeing him more in the central midfield, kind of playing an eight role. Uh, but with Teal Bunbury out, Juan Agudelo moved up top, which is a bit of a surprise to me. I I kind of expected Juan Fernando Caicedo to start at the number nine spot. Um, but nope, they ended up going with Juan Agudelo. Uh, he had a bit of a mixed bag game two shots one shot was on target but it was that scuff shot that was created by Pania. uh he had another shot that was off target he was 26 for 34 passing 77 percent. he was 14 for 18 in the attacking third which is pretty solid two for four into the penalty box he did create two chances three ball recoveries was dispossessed three times uh, and he had a tackle on clearance probably when he um <laughs> went back into the midfield so um played a little bit of midfield played a little bit of striker um sean what was your thoughts on juan agadello's performance yesterday yeah, I think you know Juan Agudelo. You know, for years we've been talking about wanting to see him become that that striker that can hold up the ball and and you know lay the ball off to guys. And there's been flashes of it in his career, um, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't worked out. Um, I didn't think he was terrible in this game, but I didn't think he did enough. Um, it's you know it's disappointing. And again, we talked about this a lot that Juan Agudelo at this point in his career never developed into that striker. I think you know if you look back six seven years when you know he was. You know, young guy in this league, there was so much potential, and you looked at him as a guy that was going to be that number nine. Um, but at, at this point, I, I just don't see it anymore. Um, I think that, <laughs> I think there's been so many years where we've expected it to happen, and it hasn't happened. Um, you know, with Teal Bunbury out, I, I, I still didn't mind seeing Juan Aguadalo up there. Um, his hold-up play, I don't think, was as good as it could have been. Um, his connection with some of the guys in the midfield wasn't as good as it could have been. With that said, he did have two key passes, you know, 76.5% passing accuracy, three aerial duels. Um, so it, it wasn't a terrible performance. It just, I think you expect so much from Juan Aguadelo, or at least you used to expect so much from Juan Aguadelo based on, you know, what he came into the league as. And um, it was one of those games that just kind of a reminder that he never really developed into that, you know, kind of all-star caliber striker that, um, you know, a lot of people expected he would have based on how he came into the league. Yeah, I agree. And I'm not totally sure if they should go forward with him at striker. He, he seems to be an okay option, but for whatever reason, his finishing just seems to get weaker and weaker every year. Um, he does a lot of things good or okay, but nothing really great. Um, and yeah, I, it's a little disappointing to see him not being able to finish that chance in the first half. Um, to his credit, when he got went, went back in the midfield, he seemed a little bit more comfortable. He had that great chip pass to um, uh, Carly's heel, which was uh, volleyed and unfortunately saved. That would have been an amazing assist uh, if it went in. But, um, you know, Juan Agudelo, you're right, never developed into that star striker that we kind of thought would happen five, six years ago. So um, pretty disappointing to see and. Uh, I, I'm not so sure if we'll get see him make another start at striker. Um, who knows how long Teal Bunbury is out, but I can't imagine that um, he's going to be making the start over Teal Bunbury uh, anytime soon. 
Sean, let's move on to listener questions. Uh, we have some other players we're going to talk about, but they're they're kind of covered in listener questions, so we'll move along. Uh, but the first person we should talk about is Michael Mancien. Um, Randy LH said, should Mancien start next weekend, assuming uh, Tony De La Mea is healthy? Uh, and we did also got a question from Cody Hall saying, why is Mancien so bad, yet being paid so much? Uh, based on what I've seen, uh, this is just uh, this isn't rust. It's just a continuation of his time in England. Uh, so, Sean, I mean, we'll we'll start with the question of whether or not Michael Mancien should start next weekend. Um, Tony De La Mea and Jaleel Anibaba were available on the bench in this game. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Do you think Mancien gets a start in New York? I mean, if De La, if De La Mea is 90 minutes fit, and I kind of suspect he will be by then, um, I think De La Mea starts over Mancien. I, I think De La Mea and Farrell have been a good combination um, you know, when they've had the opportunity to play together. Um, I don't think Mancien or Farrell had a particularly good game this week. Um, both of them, you know, had, had their moments where they got caught. Um, but you know, Mancian, it is, it is a thing where consistently he hasn't been good enough. Um, you know, you mentioned that, that moment where he slipped and only, you know, Dewan Jones's speed kind of saved the revolution from being in a worse situation, um, on that play early on. But, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen enough from Mancian to tell me he's a better partner for Farrell than De La Mea. Um, so if De La Mea is 90 minutes fit, I think he goes right back in there. And um, we've talked plenty about, about Mancian being overpaid, so I don't think we need to, to get into that. Everyone, I think everyone would agree that he is overpaid, even with the slightly reduced salary this year from what he made last year. Uh, but, you know, every time you, you hope this is going to be the time where, you know, Mancian kind of turns it around, um, you know, he's he's good for one big error a game, at least. And um, we saw, you know, one or two in this game that, could have proved costly for the revolution. Um, so, you know, Mancian, I expect to, I fully expect will be gone next year. Um, and I, you know, expect if De La May is healthy, that he goes back into the lineup this year. Yeah. And I wonder too, if Mancian is making starts because he is paid so much, I don't think Bruce Arena would make that decision based on salary, but I, I, I don't know why Mancian is still starting. Um, you know, he's coming off of an injury, I'm glad he's physically fit and all that. But Tony De La Mea has been perfectly fine. If Andrew Farrell wasn't playing center back, I would imagine if he was playing right back or something like that, I could see why Michael Mancian is starting. But Farrell has pretty much played center back every single game since Bruce Arena took over. Um, And he's been until yesterday, he's been playing all 90 minutes. So I'm not totally sure what the argument for Michael Mancian is starting over Tony De La Mea is. I don't even know if you can really make a good argument for Mancian starting over any Baba. Um, I, I'm not totally sure what we're doing here. Um, you know, we're talking about the play that Jones recovered on. I mean, Michael Mancian also had a play late in the second half where, you know, ball comes in, he's trying to clear it, and the ball kind of hits off the side of his foot and goes out for a corner. I mean, if TFC scores on that, I mean, Michael Mancian is the go- is you know, the total scapegoat of this game. Um, you know, he, he had a number of plays where he just didn't seem, I don't know. I don't even, I don't even know. It, it used to be even last year in 2018, when the revs weren't doing that great, Michael Mancian was good in the air. Uh, he seemed pretty confident. Now when he clears the ball, it seems like he's scuffing some plays. He's not clearing them really as well as he used to. I, it, I don't know if it is rust. I mean, he's had three or four games, but Regardless of what it is, I, I don't know why anyone would start Mancien over Tony De La Maya. I, I think Tony De La Maya and Andrew Farrell, as you mentioned, have been a pretty solid pairing. So I'm not sure why. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't figure out why Michael Mancien is starting again. I was confused last week and I'm confused this week. And, you know, I, I think 
if you have Dewan Jones and Brandon Baez, your outside backs, and they're pushing up so much, you need two reliable center backs who are able to go, you know, sprint back and forth, cover a lot of ground, and kind of be solid all the way around. And I think right now that's Andrew Farrell, and I think that's Tony DeLamea. It, it was weird seeing De La Maya come on as a sub in this game, though, wasn't it? I, was that, do you think that was solely because of the yellow card Farrell was on? That was a, a strange one to see, to see Farrell get brought yes. off when they're trying to chase a goal. So I asked that at the time. I didn't understand. And someone did mention that Andrew Farrell had a yellow card, which does make a lot of sense to me. Um, I don't know if it's an easing De La Maya back into game minutes type thing. I, I, I don't know. It was a strange third sub. Uh, and we have a question about Dayon Buchanan. Actually, we'll get to that question next. But um, I was confused to see, you know, down a goal. I was confused to see a center back subbed on for a center back. That didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, someone did. I, I guess it's the yellow card. You know, if you have one reliable center back and you're going into New York next week, you need your center back. So maybe they're just protecting Farrell in that case. Um, but did that greatly improve their chances of winning that game? No. Did it greatly improve their chances of getting a goal? No. Uh, so hey, I was pretty... he did have a header on a free kick. <laughs> Could happen. <laughs> I, I, I guess. I mean, it worked. It worked. So, you know, they, they ended up scoring. So what do I know? But um, but yeah, I, I I don't know why Michael Mantian's starting anymore. It's confusing to me. So not to, to drive a point home, but let's go to Tayon Buchanan uh, while we're talking about that odd sub, which you and I were texting about it yesterday of, you know, you need a goal. Um, they had Diego, they had JFC on the bench, and then they had Tayon Buchanan. Those were really the only three offensive subs you have on the bench. Uh, and games winding down, and they go to Tony De La Maya to sub in for Andrew Farrell, which, again, I assume is a yellow card thing. But I also think it's noteworthy that Tayon Buchanan, since Bruce Arena has come into the team, really has not played a lot of minutes. Uh, he has one appearance under Bruce Arena, and that was a 90th-minute sub back in the LA Galaxy game. Uh, so he really has not made a, much of an impact lately. Um, 2K Mike on Discord asks us, what do you consider Buchanan's role with this team and does he have a future in the 18? Um, and Sean, let me just kind of start here. I don't I don't think he does have a role on the 2019 revs anymore. I, I don't know. It's pretty clear he's buried uh, in the on, the on the bench and I don't think Bruce Arena has a lot of trust in him, uh, which is kind of interesting to see because when he was in games under Friedel um, and under Lapper, he made a positive impact in my mind. Um, he does have some speed. He's a very raw player, but he seemed to be a, a positive um, uh, prospect. So, uh, Sean, what are your thoughts on Tayon Buchanan's role? Uh, and do you think he has a future in the 18 with the reps? No, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. If you look at you know this game in particular, if he was going to have um, a role in 2019, this would be a game where you think he might come into. Um, you know, understandably, with who the Revolution have, with you know Gustavo Bowen on the roster, with you know Pania playing better, with Fagundes, um, you know, if you look at the Revolution 18, when Teal Bunbury is healthy, um, you know, and you want to bring on three offensive subs, Buchanan's probably the fourth guy. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's that's not really a role. Um, but if you look at the the game yesterday, he was probably the third offensive sub that you could have brought in. Um, and the fact that they didn't bring him in, you know, isn't a great sign. Um, again, you know, who would you bring him in for? You'd probably have to bring him in for like a fullback and, and kind of, you know, give up some defense to, to go offensively. Although I'd you know argue that you're not giving up too much defense. If you're taking Brandon by out to put Buchanan in, um, which maybe would have been the sub that I would have thought about doing. Uh, but yeah, if, if Buchanan's not coming into this game when, you know, you're down a goal in the 82nd minute and he's your last offensive sub on the bench and De La May is going in instead. Um, that really doesn't speak to him having a role going forward this year. Um, I do think we saw a lot of promising signs from him early on in the season. So it's a bit disappointing that, you know, a 20-year-old 20 rookie isn't, you know, having an opportunity for more minutes. And it's 
really unfortunate, um, again, that the Revolution don't have a USL team this year that they could be getting minutes on because, you know, when you're the age Tejon Buchanan is and you're kind of a fringe first teamer, borderline first teamer, um, it, that's where it's really difficult because, you know, if you're the Revolution, you don't want to loan them out to a team um, knowing that, you know, one or two ads get hurt, you, you need them immediately. Um, but, uh, you know, at that age, you really need to be getting minutes. So, uh, it's not good for his development that he's sitting on the bench for the revolution and, and not getting any time. Um, and, you know, again, I agree. He's a very promising player. Uh, but I also kind of understand why, you know, when everyone's healthy, he's probably the fourth option off the bench if you need offense. Um, and, you know, last night he was the, the third option off the bench if you needed offense and he you know didn't come on. So, um, you know, <laughs> at this point, maybe you really do need to, to loan him out somewhere because it's, it, it doesn't make sense to have a 20-year-old with that kind of talent. Um, and as you said, kind of a raw player. He needs minutes. And he's not getting them. Do you read into the fact that they have loaned out Ann King and Renix and they're giving Cody Cropper minutes in Hartford and they seem to be loaning out their prospects, but Tayon Buchanan is still in New England, I assume kind of as cover. Uh, but do, do you might read into that, that maybe they value Renix more than Buchanan or something along that line? Or do you think that that he's staying home more or less just because they need bodies in Foxborough? Yeah, honestly, I don't know what to to read into that because it, you know, I I, th- I think from what we saw that maybe Renix was rated above Buchanan by Arena. Um, I you know, it's it's hard to judge what where Anking's rated. He really hasn't seen the field this year for the Revolution, um, so I I you know, not really sure. He looked good, promising last year when he you know had some minutes, but you know, he hasn't really had an opportunity this year. Um, it's hard to imagine that he's above Buchanan on the depth chart. I mean, they play different positions, so that's you know, part of it. But, um, yeah, I don't know why you'd send those two guys out on loan and not also send Buchanan out on loan if Buchanan's not playing. Um, and, unless, and you know, I think it, it maybe if I, if I was to guess what that means, it's that Buchanan's, you know, closer to seeing minutes for the first team than those two guys are. But I'm, I'm not really sure that's the case. Yeah, and, and it should be mentioned that, you know, Buchanan is 20 years old. He came out of college in the Super Draft um, after his sophomore year. So someone like Dewan Jones is two more. You know, he's older by two years. Dewan Jones came out as a senior. So, you know, Tanya Buchanan does have some development, too. You got to kind of treat him as a college junior. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think him riding the bench is a kind of death wish. I, I think there are some guys that are further along in their careers, like Zach Haribo and Brian Wright, that I think, you know, it's kind of put up and shut up time. Whereas Tayon Buchanan, I think, could be, you know, ride the bench this year and ride the bench for six months next year or be loaned out next year. But he still could play a role on the Revs in 2021 or 2022, because at that point, he's 22, 23 years old. Um, so I, I'm not. I don't think this is indicative of him not having a role in the revs in the future, but I think short term, I, I don't, I, I think he, he's only going to see time if the revs are losing by three goals or winning by three goals. And they kind of want to see how he fits at striker or kind of plays on that left wing or plays on that right wing and kind of just um, kind of show off what he can do. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to see any meaningful minutes throughout the rest of the season. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a bit unfortunate because he started out so well for the Revs. This would have been a fun but, game to get him into, too, because he's from the Toronto area. So I'm sure he would have been very much up for, you know, for this game and had some extra motivation to to show off. That's true. Isn't Brian Wright also from Ontario? I don't know if he's from the Toronto area, but we could have called up Brian Wright for this game, started him at striker, <laughs> get all mean, the Canadians to uh, go after TFC. I mean, he, he couldn't have scored less goals in Aguadelo if he played striker, so... <laughs> 
and he had a really great play last week. I don't know if you uh, uh, if you saw it, but um, really, well, really amazing individual effort for Birmingham uh, Legion. He had an assist, uh, pretty much ran the entire length of the field, nutmegged a guy, um, and then kind of just slid the ball across for a, for a teammate who just kind of had a tap in. So Brian Wright making waves down in Birmingham, actually really, really impressive uh, at the USL level. So not sure if he's ever coming back to the Rebs, but um We'll, we'll move on. Uh, Cambo6 asks us, why couldn't we find any way to get through the Toronto defense in the first 70 minutes? Um, really the first 80 to 85 minutes, Sean. Um, but uh, any reasons to why you think the Revs couldn't break down the Toronto D yesterday? I mean, t- Toronto kind of sat back a bit and was content to be more of a counterattacking team and did it really well. Um, and, you know, again, I think the, the Revolution are just starting to become that team that, you know, under Bruce Arena, they've, they've played so well that they're starting to become a team that teams are afraid of and are more willing to kind of sit back against. And, you know, Toronto being without out the door, probably that changed their approach a little bit, knowing that their, their star striker was out. Um, you know, I know we've talked about Patrick Mullins, but he's definitely not the caliber of a guy like like Josie Altidore. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, why the Revolution struggle to break down a team like Toronto. I don't think Toronto actually has that great of a defense. Obviously, you know, bringing in Gonzalez helps that. Um, but I actually didn't think Gonzalez had that good of a game. Um, so I'm not really, really sure what the Revolution's problem is. I think Pania is a guy that we've talked about before that's better on the counterattack. Um, so when the Revolution are playing that way, you kind of get more out of him. I'm not sure he's a guy that uh, running at stationary defenders that are kind of okay to, to, to sit back and um, are in a position to not be broken down uh, is, is his strong suit, which is why we saw, you know, Bow and, and, and Heel in a lot of cases kind of playing short combination plays between the two of them, and Toronto was kind of able to, to focus on that to, to kind of slow down the attack. Um, but, you know, it was, I think they missed Teal Bunbury, um, but I do think, you know, overall it's kind of a problem for the Revolution breaking down defenses like that when, when Carles Heel and Gustavo Bow are being focused on by the defense and when the, the team is content to kind of play for a draw or, or one nothing win rather than taking the offense to the Revolution, um, which also is probably why the, the Revolution sometimes look better on the road um, when they're going against a team that they you know that wants to be more of the aggressor and, and leaves more holes open. Yeah, and, you know, to be fair to the Revs, too, they did have a few chances that, you know, they got a little unlucky on. Obviously, there was the Juan Agadello chance that, um, you know, he just couldn't finish. There was the Carly Heel volley that we've talked about. Um, there was the Gustavo Bow play where um, Christian Pena kind of goes for a ball and Westberg comes out of net and Westberg can't control it. Pena passes it back to Bow and Bow misses an empty net, although, to be fair, it was a bit of an odd angle. It, Maybe he should have finished it, maybe not. But, um, you know, there were some chances created by the Revs in this game. Um, let's see, four, two, eight. They had 11 chances created in this game, um, which isn't horrible. Uh, they just didn't have a lot of big chances outside of the Carles Heel and Agadello chances. I, I don't think there were any, you know, can't miss plays that, you know, you kind of expected. But you're right. I, I think Toronto came into this game looking for a point. They were looking to absorb pressure um, and, and counterattack. And, you know, they're hoping that, you know, they can exploit the wings and exploit Brandon by being out of position and Dewan Jones out of position. Uh, and eventually they ended up getting that goal. It looked like their strategy was going to work out. But um, were you surprised a little bit that Toronto FC did play that kind of counterattacking style? I kind of expected them to come out and try to go for all three points. Maybe it was missing Josie Altador, but um, I was a little bit surprised how defensive Toronto was in this game and, and how content they seemed playing for a point. And, and another point, too, I'll mention that, you know, they score the goal and they immediately go into parking the bus. Um, which 
again, I thought was a little strange. I don't know why they changed too much. The counterattacking seemed to be working or, or seemed to be effective. But uh, were, were you surprised at Toronto's strategy in this game, Sean? Well, at the, at the same time, Toronto almost had as many passes in the final third as the, the Revolution did and actually completed 74% of the Toronto attempted 149 passes in the final third, completed 74%. The Revs attempted 150, completed 63%. Um, I was, you know, when I saw Alistair was out, I think I kind of expected it more from Toronto that they would sit back a bit more. Um, so I guess I wasn't too surprised. Um, they are a team that relies very much on Alto to kind of be that. You know, we talked about what the Revolution wanted out of Juan Agudelo as kind of a hold-up striker if he's playing number nine. Um, Toronto expects that out of Josie Altador and gets that out of Josie Altador when he's healthy. Um, so I think they're, you know, really a different team when he's out of out of the field. And I think they recognize that. And that's probably why we saw them, you know, take a more defensive posture than we might have expected. Um, but, you know, they, they outpossessed the Revolution for a good chunk of the first half. And then you know, the second half, especially after they scored that goal, they were really content uh, to sit back. But, you know, the Revolution, if they're going to be a playoff team and if they're going to have success in the playoffs, they need to be able to find a way to, to break down teams like that. You do mention there were some, you know, some good chances. That, that heel chance in particular really stands out, and that was a fantastic save by, by Westberg. But um, I still don't think they did enough to, to break down that Toronto defense um, throughout this game and, and really cause them problems. And that kind of leads to our next question, too. Gustavo Bo is the best striker on Discord. Asks us, how long can the let Gustavo bail you out by creating something out of nothing strategy work on offense? Um, Sean, what are your what are your thoughts? How much longer can they uh, go with this? Look, I think it works against a, a team like like Toronto, even that's um, missing one of their star players or you know some of the the mid tier teams in the league. But you know when you get into the playoffs and you're on the road against Atlanta or Philadelphia or or a team like that, I, you know I don't think it's enough. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of guys that are very capable on this team of creating chances. Um, but it, it almost seems like they maybe were too, are too passive with Carles Hill and, and Gustavo Bowen and kind of letting them do their thing. Um, but you know, again, like I said earlier, um, this is almost a revolution team that has pieces that are better on the counterattack. So, you know, if you go into the road in a playoff game, the revs are almost better set up. Um, to kind of take advantage and, and win that game than they are to, to take advantage of a, of a home game where um, another team is more content to sit back. Um, so it, it'll be kind of fascinating to watch because, you know, under Arena, this has been a good road team. Um, and, you know, forever under, you know, even under Brad Friedel, they were kind of a good counterattacking team. So, and under Jay Heaps, they were certainly a good counterattacking team. So I think they're kind of set up to be that counterattacking team. Um, and we've seen a bit more of a, a plan B with Bruce Arena and an ability to, to find a way to get results, even when you know counterattacking is not going to be the the strategy against uh, a team that's sitting back, but you know it still seems like the personnel on this team, a guy like Christian Pena, a guy like Diego Fagundes, are almost better counterattacking players than they are players in possession. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And you know, if we're trying to pinpoint, you know. How much longer can the, you know, Gustavo Bo takes shots from outside of the box and hopefully one goes in strategy works. I mean, I think this is the last week it could work. You look at the schedule up ahead at New York City, at Orlando City, home versus Real Salt Lake, at Portland, home versus uh, New York City, and then at Atlanta. I mean, those are teams that probably aren't going, maybe Orlando is is the exception, but those are teams that are not going to be making errors like Westberg did yesterday. Um, and, and I think you're going to need more than just having Gustavo Bo launching shots from outside of the box. So yeah, they need a little bit more cohesion there in the offensive third. And I know Gustavo Bo has only played eight games, uh, but 
uh, it'll be interesting to see if this offense develops and kind of hits more of a hot streak and um, they kind of figure out who they're attacking for is and um, where they go from here. But um, I, I don't think, you know, going into New York next week, um, we're going to get bailed out like we did yesterday. I'm actually uh, so. fascinated to see how that game plays out because New York City FC on the road was kind of the the one game that Brad Friedel um, was always always had this Revolution team up for because they're playing on that you know tiny postage stamp field and the counterattacking like pressing style that they played under Brad Friedel really worked against New York City FC. Um, it was the it was the one team that you know had a ton of success against with with that strategy on the road. Um, so I'm very curious to see how Bruce Arena plays against them and how that works out because it's just a unique circumstance to go against the New York City FC team at that tiny, tiny field. Um, I, I don't know how it will work with, with what Bruce Arena has been doing, but it's, if you were ever to take a page out of uh, Brad Friedel's book, that's probably the one team uh, you could do it against. Yeah, big win last year uh, in New York City. Uh, shout out Brian Wright. Uh, pretty solid win. I think it was 2-1 uh, last year. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully we can get a bit of a repeat performance this year and steal kind of three, three points on the road against a, a very solid uh, NYCFC team who's pretty pretty good at home. Uh, Money 008 on Discord asks us, how was it the weakest shot on goal was the one that went in? Uh, I'm a little confused too because the Juan Agadell shot didn't go in. Uh, so I, I'm a little confused <laughs> at this question. But uh, no, but the Gustavo Bo, I, I, not to kind of repeat the same point, but when Bo shoots, he's got some velocity on that ball. I think that was just Westberg either maybe he, there was a screen, maybe he just reacted so soon, or maybe he just misjudged the speed on that shot. Uh, but I, I think the the fact that Bo kind of unleashed a bit of a low rocket, even though it was right at Westberg's feet, I think it was a little bit of an awkward play for Westberg. Um, Should have been saved. Matt Turner would have easily had it. Uh, but you're right. It's it's kind of an interesting, <laughs> interesting that, uh, you know, Bo, a scuffed shot from Gustavo Bo from outside the box finds its way to squeak in. Honestly, anytime I see a, a shot like that, I assume the turf had something to do with it. When, when it's kind of a low shot, <laughs> I assume there's some sort of weird balance that the goalkeeper doesn't read, and that had something to do with it. I'm not sure that was the case there, but that's generally my assumption. And I think it's great that you have a guy like Gustavo Bone now that's willing to you know, took seven shots in this game. Not all of them were, were too good, but um, you know anything can happen, especially on turf, when you're taking kind of long, low shots like that. Um, so it's great they have somebody willing to do that. I think over the years, the Revolution haven't done that enough. Um, you know, there's a lot of home field advantages to playing on turf, and you know, tricky bounces happen, confusing things that you wouldn't necessarily see happen on a, a good grass field happen. Um, again, I, I'm not sure that a weird bounce did happen on that on that ball, but um, it might have. And my, my general assumption is to just say, you know, if, if a low shot like that catches a goalkeeper off guard, the turf probably did something to it. I'll buy that theory. I'll I'll, I'll say the uh, Gillette Stadium turf is a uh, pro for the team instead of a uh, negative. Um, let's move over to the other goalkeeper in this game, who again was outstanding. Matt Turner, another wonderful full performance, and nearby Eclipse on Discord agrees with us. Uh, Matt Turner made some more excellent saves. I'm low key glad he isn't being considered for the national team, but he is better than Miller, Sean Johnson, Gonzalez, etc. Um, Sean. You think Matt Turner is better than those keepers that he mentioned? I mean, he, he's leading that expected goals to goals uh, against stat. Um, you know, should Matt Turner be considered for the national team? I mean, I think he's definitely, if he keeps playing this way, earned a January call-up. Um, I don't think, you know, Sean Johnson, I think, the, you know, that list of goalkeepers that were listed, I don't think any of them, um, you know, Jesse Gonzalez had a lot of potential um, and is a pretty good keeper, but I don't think any of those guys have, you know, 
really lived up to to the hype. Um, Matt Turner, at his best, I think has the potential to be better than all those guys. Um, again, you know, he's barely played more than a full season worth of games over his career. Um, I don't think it's necessarily time for him yet to jump right up for a you know game against Mexico and Uruguay. Um, but I do think if he keeps playing at the level he's playing at, there is a you know future for him there. And I definitely think um, unless he has a big you know drop in form um, that come January, he's earned himself a call to that camp. And if he doesn't get one and he keeps playing like this, then then it's time to start asking some questions. Um, but yeah, I don't th- I don't think that you know <laughs> the competition of those three guys you just named um, is something that he can't overcome if he keeps playing the way he's playing right now. Yeah, and I mean, goalkeeper is probably the position that, you know, the United States has the most competition at and the most depth at there. You know, it's never been a position that, uh, you know, the United States has lacked at. So and and of course, I feel like there's always Brad Guzan, uh, who uh, seemingly won't go away and and he'll kind of have that uh, spot on lockdown for the next few years. But and Zach um, Steffen. Yeah. And Zach Stelt, yes, Zach Stephan too. Yeah, so I, I don't think he'll ever see significant minutes. But, you know, a friendly against, you know, Iceland or whoever, you know, I, I, I would like to see him get called into a camp. I think he's certainly earned it. He's made a name for himself in MLS. Um, I, I'd like to see him make an all-star team or two down the road sometime. But, you know, we'll see. It, it, there's so many great keepers. The, the three that we mentioned, um, you know, are at best fringe national team players also. And they get called up every now and then. But, um yeah, yeah. Well, and, and moving on to the next question, kind of related, uh, Bent Musket Matt asks us, how many MLS Cups will Matt Turner win with the Revs before he wins his first World Cup? Um, next World Cup is in 2024. So one, two, three, four, five, right? Five Cups until the next World Cup for the Revs or for New England? That that question seems like it was designed for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, wait, so there's 2019, there's 2020, or no, the next World Cup's 2022. I, I botched this question. Let's just cut this whole thing. <laughs> a lot. That's the point. There you go. Wait, I really said the next World Cup was 2024. Jeez, that's yikes. Yikes. Oh, I'm terrible at math. Um, <laughs> moving on quickly, uh, avoiding that error. Um, I'm going to say three for the actual answer. But moving on, Matt Turner is literally Jesus. Another big Matt Turner fan on Discord uh, asked us, how many goals will Bo score the rest of the season? Uh, as mentioned, well, and we'll just do regular season here, but there's six games left at New York City FC, at Orlando, home versus Real Salt Lake, at Portland, home versus uh, New York City FC, and then at Atlanta. Um, six goals through eight games so far for Bo. Uh, Sean, how many more do you think he has in him? You know, I think he'd get to 10. I think that's it's realistic that he gets to 10. I think the Rebels have a very tough schedule coming up. Um, but, you know, the New York City FC game, that actually seems like a game that's, again, kind of designed for a guy like Bo, who's willing to take a lot of shots on that small field. Um, you know, Orlando on the road, that's a game that, you know, you should be able to score in. Salt Lake, that's another team that at home you could have some success against. Um, Portland on the road, very difficult. And, you know, Portland's been... You know, started off the season with a lot of road games, so they didn't have the best record, but they still, you know, kept themselves in playoff contention. Um, and then, of course, New York City at home, and then Atlanta on the road. Um, I, I'm going to go with four, and you know, I think that's a, if he hits ten goals coming in midseason, that would be a very impressive haul. That would be extremely impressive, and there was a lot of talk of. Um, we, uh, Seth and I talked yesterday, uh, last week about him being a 20 plus goal scorer in MLS. I know the Revs uh, kind of talked about it. They they released a, an article that uh, I think Carlos Hill said that he's a 20 uh, goal scorer in um, uh, uh, MLS. Um, I, I I think 10 10 goals in 
14 games is pretty absurd. Um, but I mean, that's not unrealistic. I'm going to go with three. I think he kind of finishes the season with nine goals. Um, I, I think there is a lot of tough opponents. And also, too, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that's he's going into a couple of very difficult places to play. And, I, you know, he's going to get his shots. Um, but yesterday, he, you know, he seemed a little bit off target. Uh, I'm sure as the season goes on, these teams like NYCFC and Atlanta are going to kind of be able to lock him down a little bit better, play better defense than Toronto did. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go with three. I think he scores in both home games, Real Salt Lake and New York City. And then I think he's going to put one in on the road. Uh, so I, I, another good question, though, is will Gustavo Bo have a brace before the end of the season? Um, you know, he has not had a multi-goal game yet, which is shows off his consistency. But um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Sean. I, I don't think there's any opponent that Gustavo Bo can totally go off on and, and really exploit. It seems like a bit of a um, tough, maybe Orlando is, they seem to be the weakest opponent left. Maybe that's a team that Gustavo Bo is going to have a field day against. But outside of that, all these teams are very solid defensively. Maybe maybe Portland plays Claude Dielna at center back and Gustavo Bo is able to score a hat trick. But um, outside of that, I'm not sure it's it's a tough schedule and I, I think the revs are going to be fighting out some zero zero one one draws here and there no I, I think it is going to be tough for him to get a brace in any of those games i wouldn't say impossible certainly um he's a very talented player and if he's taking seven shots in the game all he needs is a little bit of luck to, to get two of those to go in um but yeah i mean it wouldn't surprise me either way um you know regardless he's been a fantastic player for the revolution so far um and you know, exciting to see what he can do for the revolution the rest of this year and, and next year when he ha- has a full season and a preseason under his belt. It's not common for a player to join at the time of the season that he did and immediately have the impact that he has. Usually there's an adjustment period and there really hasn't been much of an adjustment period for him, which is a you know fantastic sign and speaks a lot to his quality. Yep. Uh, a couple more questions here from Revolution Report. Actually, he first has a comment that Juan Fernando Caicedo, Caicedo 2, uh, is a better striker than Juan Agadello, which I think is true. Um, just a quick question for you, Sean. Do you think Caicedo 2 gets the start at striker next week? Yeah, I mean, as long as, as Bunbury is out, I think, um, I personally, I think Caicedo is probably the, the better option for the revolution up top. Um, you know, I, I've said it before on this, this podcast, but it really, going into New York City, it's kind of a different game completely than it is when you're playing on a normal-sized field. Um, so, I, you know, I think it would be good to have a guy like Caicedo out there that... Um, is, is, you know, good at cleaning up the scraps and, you know, perhaps a, a better finisher with a better nose for goal, um, than Juan Aguadalo has right now. Um, so I, you know, I think Caicedo is the, the better option at striker going forward with Teal Bunbury out. And switching over to the other Caicedo, uh, Caicedo one, uh, revolution report also asks us, could Luis Caicedo play at the next level as in Europe? Um, Caicedo's only 23 is, is having another really solid season is a bit, a bit quiet and under the radar, but. Um, him and Wilfred Zahibo have played very, very solidly in the defensive midfield lately. Um, Sean, do you think Luis Caicedo is eventually going to move overseas and play in Europe? I think the potential is there. I think um, Luis Caicedo has been a fantastic player for the Revolution at just 23 years old. Um, and if he keeps developing, um, I think there's certainly a potential that he could go over to Europe. Uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't see – there's not that many players in the world at that position that cover as much ground as Caicedo is capable of covering – um, and, you know, kind of have the awareness that he seems to have, you know, he still makes mistakes. He's not perfect, but he's only 23 years old. And if he keeps developing, um, you know, players that play the role that he does and, and kind of 
can cover the ground that he does and, and have the impact on the game that he does. Um, you know, our, our players that teams seek out and at his age, there's a lot of potential for him to, to be a guy that could go over and at some point play in Europe, I think. Yeah. And he does not turn the ball over ever. I mean, pass accuracy for him is typically off the charts. He's usually, uh, you know, at the top of the, uh, uh, uh rev sheet in, in terms of pass accuracy. Uh, he does a great job of winning the ball and then not turning it over. So, um, yeah, at, at age 23, I wouldn't be shocked to see if a team from, uh, Europe comes calling. I don't know if it's the highest level. I don't think we'll see him play in the premier league or anything like that, but I, I don't see why he couldn't make a strong impact in France or Spain or Germany or something like that. Just not at right um, back. Just, <laughs> uh, why do you have to remind me that Brad Phil tried him at right back? What a, what a, what an idiot. Oh my goodness. Um, what a terrible decision that was. I, uh, uh, revolution report also asked us how much is Diego Fagundes worth on the market? Um, this is a bit of a tough question. I tried looking for some comps, and there really wasn't anything from this year within MLS that, um, you know, any comparable trades I, that I found that that might be comparable for Diego. Um, it's a bit of an interesting question, too, because we talk about, you know, what Diego's future is with the Revs. If he's leaving at the end of the season, should the Revs trade him? Should they have traded him in the transfer market uh, or in the transfer window um, this summer? Um, it, it's a bit strange. And I, I think I am. Also a little helpless on this question because I'm not really sure what he's worth. I think his value has taken a, a huge hit in recent months because he's been relegated to the bench. But I think a lot of play, a lot of teams throughout Major League Soccer know who he is, know his impact on the Revs, know he's scored 51 goals uh, throughout his career, and know he's very young and he's a very talented player uh, who can play a number of positions. Um, so I'm not totally sure what his worth on the market is. Um, if I were to guess, I would put it around maybe a little bit what the Revs got back for Lee Wynn, um, just because I, I don't think the Revs have a lot of leverage and, you know, they know he's an expendable piece. Um, the potential and the upside is there, but I, I think this value is winding down. I'm not sure what they will get for him if they decide to sell him in the offseason. Yeah, and I think, you know, his play has deflated his value a little bit. And I think the, you know, the comments um, in the offseason that, you know, implied he wanted to leave, um probably deflate his value a little bit because teams know he's looking to get out and what he has one year left one year option year left after this in his contract um you know so I, yeah it's tough to say transfer market has his value at two million um i think it's probably less than that right now i don't i, I, I don't think it could be that because i if i remember correctly frank delapa had uh he said that years ago there was an offer for diego for from a european team for two million um, if I remember correctly, and that was one or two years ago, so I can't imagine his value is still at two million dollars. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. And it's also, you know, tough because if he's going to go to another MLS team, it's it's very different than if there was actually a you know a, a free market like there is in the rest of the world where they can just throw whatever money they wanted him. And, and maybe maybe if it was if MLS had the same rules as the rest of the world as far as transfers, maybe maybe they could get two million if it was just an owner paying out of pocket as opposed to Tam and Gam and all of that fun stuff. Um, but it, it is very hard for me to say what Diego's worth. He is 24 years old. Um, he has, you know, he has, his, his career stats are very impressive for somebody that age. Uh, but he undoubtedly hasn't had the impact this year that he has in the past. Um, and it's, you know, kind of been that way under two coaches. He didn't, he wasn't playing that well under Brad Friedel this year. And I don't think he's been playing particularly well under Bruce Arena, even though he's played a little bit better. Um, you know, if you had asked, if you had tried to sell him, 
you know, mid-year last year when he was playing the number 10 role for Brad Friedel and was having one of the better starts to a season in his career, um, you know, two million actually might have made sense. And I could have actually seen that and maybe even more than that. Um, but I, I do think his value has deflated a lot since then. Um, when you're a guy now 24 that's kind of entering the, the prime of your career um, and you're a bench player uh, after the, the strong start you had as a, as a younger guy, um, you know, that's that's not going to be good for your value. And, you know, he was getting some call-ups for the youth national teams of Uruguay years ago. Um, he doesn't seem to be on Uruguay's radar at all anymore, understandably. Uh, so it's it's tough for me to say, I think, it, and two, given the contract situation, um, I would struggle to see the revolution if they were trading with NMLS getting, you know, even a million dollars in, in GAM or TAM. And if they were trading with, outside of MLS, you know, if they could get a million dollars on the, you know, kind of the free market from another team, um, you know, at this point, that would probably be a, a decent haul for him. Um, it's just disappointing because he still has a lot of potential and he's still, you know, clearly a very talented player. But um, for whatever reason, it, it hasn't been there this year. Uh, from him in the way it has been in the past years and it really you know kind of started towards the second half of last year um i don't know if brad friedel broke him or <laughs> what it was but um he he hasn't really seemed to be the same player even though there's been a few flashes here and there yeah he actually was pretty decent in the tenor last year too i mean he, he wasn't carlos heel but he yeah, he, he performed pretty well yeah um but yeah I, I mean the way i see it if you know sean if you're you know bruce arena and a team from Europe or wherever comes calling and in the off season, they offer you $1 million for Diego Fagundes. In my mind, you take that. I mean, I, I, I the option is either Diego Fagundes leaves after 2020 or you, you have to sell him. And, you know, $1 million is, you know, probably a lot less than what you could have gotten from him two or three years ago. But I, I still think that's a good amount of money. And I think if an MLS team comes calling and offers you half a million in allocation money, um, I mean, yeah, I, I think you got to take it uh, i i i am not sure i mean he's much more valuable as a trade chip than with the revs at this point in 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 my view and i also think that they're going to bring in you know they're going to have a lot of roster turnover um they're going to be looking to bring in some new players um and i'm sure that you know this is a guy that you know he's a better fit somewhere else than he is in bruce arena system uh and so i i think clearing the roster spot is a plus in general and um, I don't know. I, 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 I can't put a dollar value on it again because there aren't a lot of comparables. But I mean, if the Revs get half a million dollars in Tam, uh, I think that's a great haul. I, I just do. I, I don't think he's I don't think Diego has much of a future with the Revs. And um, I, I again, I think they could have gotten a lot more for him a year ago. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. They've held on to him. And I, I think that value is uh, depreciated pretty significantly. So the the math changes if you know Diego and his dad come back and say hey you know now that Bruce Arena is the head coach we want to stay here i don't think that's going to happen but if that were to happen you know it would be kind of a different equation um but knowing what we know now and assuming that's not the case i agree with everything you just said the other thing too is i think if they did that they'd want a new contract you know i yes. I, I don't think anyone would buy that diego fagundes is happy making 140 or whatever he is uh you know he he's on a very team friendly contract for one more year so you know, I, I think whether or not he forces a trade out, <clears throat> excuse me, whether or not he forces a trade out or whether or not he stays, um, regardless, I think at the off in this offseason, he's going to need a new contract from someone. So, you know, no, I, I agree with that completely. But if he, you know, 
kind of has a turnaround and says, you know, I didn't, you know, part of part of the reason I wanted to leave was Brad Friedel was a terrible coach. Um, I think everyone would understand that. And but now that Bruce Arena is here, you know, I'm willing to to commit my long term future here, and they offer him a long term contract. Um, I could get behind that too. Um, you know, even if he's kind of your, you know, when you look at your your midfield three of you know Bo Pania and uh, Heal, even if he is you know kind of your fourth option and as a rotation piece, um, I still think he has a lot to offer the team. And, you know, maybe that would be more value than, you know, $500,000 in allocation money. But if that doesn't happen, then I do think if somebody comes along and offers you half a million allocation money, you probably have to take it given there's just a year left on his contract. And then, um, you know, he is a guy that could perhaps go to South America or go somewhere else and uh, leave the revs with the revs getting nothing. Yep. Nope. Totally agree. And to be fair, he has not really, we haven't heard, any rufflings from Diego or his dad since um, Brad Friedel was fired. I, I I can't, I think Mike Lapper mentioned it on in an interview. I think it was with six States one pod where he kind of said, you know, he sat down with Diego and got Diego on board. And since then, I, I don't think we've heard anything from Diego, but I can't imagine he's very happy getting 20 minutes a game coming off the bench for Bruce arena. So um, quick uh, kind of notes from the week. Um, the revolution announced that their academy is launching a residency program. Uh, so that's actually pretty significant news, I think, in terms of the development of the, the youth academy and youth players. Um, they've announced 70 players uh, from New England are going to be um, living, uh, all expenses paid, and will be uh, working on their development. So that's pretty exciting news overall. I know a few weeks ago we got a question from a listener who asked, you know, what are some of these changes uh, that Bruce Arena is doing? What is he doing differently from Friedel? Uh, and so I think this is a pretty significant change. Um, and is another step in the correct direction for the Revs uh, down the line. So, um, you know, youth development has been a bit of a weak spot for the Revs. But um, overall, I think that this is a, a major plus. Uh, Sean, I don't know if you have anything to add on to that, but um, I, I, I imagine that this is going to lead to uh, more players coming up as homegrown players, which is the trend in MLS. No, I mean, it's it's huge. Um, you know, no longer are the revolution limited to players that are within driving distance of the team whose parents can afford to, to bring them down to practice and everything. I think it's absolutely huge to have a, a residency program. We've seen some other MLS teams doing that. Uh, Salt Lake comes to mind as one of the one of the pioneers, I think, that in, in, in adding a residency program. Um, but it's absolutely a, a step that needs to be taken, and it's a, a great step in the right direction for the revolution that will hopefully lead to, you know, expanding their reach and territory for for homegrown players. And, um, you know, again, the revolution have had some success with homegrowns with, with Caldwell and Fagundes, but really those two are the only guys that have uh, made a significant impact in the revolution, and you'd like to see more players uh, than that, do it for the revolution and a residency program and a, you know, eventually, hopefully a USL team um, would both have a huge impact. And I, I think increasing the the production of the revolution Academy. I was going to say, if they're able to pull off the USL team, which it sounds like they are planning on doing, you know, this is going to feed directly into that USL team. And I, I think they're setting up a kind of a structure similar to say, you know, Philadelphia, uh, or you mentioned RSL um, that, has developed really good youth talent. Um, so, yeah, very, very exciting news uh, from New England this week. Uh, pretty huge news. Um, I, I don't think many people will pay attention to it because I don't think they know what that means. But I, I think in terms of youth development, this is probably uh, the best news we've had in years. Uh, another big, uh, well, I don't know if it's big news, but uh, it's still news. Uh, the Revs also expanded their front office this week. Uh, they hired former Rev Chris Tierney as player recruitment manager. So it sounds like he's going to be kind of in the um, scouting slash management department. 
um, which actually Seth and I talked last week about, you know, players not willing to come to the Revs, players not wanting to come to the Revs, uh, but maybe Bruce Arena will change that. Maybe players will want to come uh, for Bruce Arena. Uh, it seems like Chris Tierney is kind of taking a role to help uh, bring in new um, veteran players uh, to recruit them to play on turf, uh, to play in Foxborough. So um, I'm not sure how much of an impact Chris Tierney will have uh, in the front office. Um, I'm not sure how serious this role is going to be, but um, pretty good to see a former player kind of come back and work in the front office for the refs. Yeah, there. I mean, it's not a secret that there hasn't been enough of that from the Revolution. Um, very, very. I'm trying to think. Very, very few players um, in the Revolution history have come back and, and worked for the team, with you know a few exceptions like Jay Heap's come back to coach and uh, Mike Burns obviously coming to be be general manager. Um, but you know, it, it's having a local guy like Chris Tierney join the front office makes a lot of sense. And um, you know, part of that I think has been the Revolution have had a you know somewhat small front office historically, and they seem to finally be expanding that. Um, so hopefully this is the, the first of things to come for the revolution and bringing back, uh, former key players that take a role in the front office and be involved in the team. I mean, you even see like teams like Portland and throughout the league that have brought former players on to be kind of ambassadors. Um, the revolution did that with Charlie Davies, but, um, all that stuff is, is stuff you'd like to see more from the team. And it's, it's, it's good to see kind of a signal of intent that they're doing with Chris Tierney. And hopefully it's just kind of the start of the revolution, bringing back more former players. I did think it was messed up for the social media team, though, because they tweeted out Chris Tierney is back. And so I, I got it on my phone. And so I looked down at my phone, it's, you know, Twitter revolution tweet out Chris Tierney is back. And they tweeted this out on roster freeze day. Uh, so they were still able to sign players that weren't attached to any contracts. And so until I opened Twitter and actually read the article, I was under the impression that Chris Tierney was coming out of retirement to play left back because the Revs desperately need a backup left back to Dwan Jones with Edgar Castillo out. So I had tricked myself into thinking for 30 seconds that Chris Tierney was actually coming out of retirement. Um, so I was actually a little disappointed to see uh, him, him back as a player recruitment manager. But regardless, I think it's good to have him back with the organization. So, um, Sean, do you have any final thoughts this week before we wrap up? I, I'm just excited. If you haven't seen it yet, check out Josh Sargent's goal this morning um, in the Bundesliga. Fantastic, where he chips it over the goalkeeper. He's got two goals now in the Bundesliga, or three goals now in the Bundesliga, and uh, very limited minutes. And if you, you know, been paying attention to the U.S. national team, um, they have games against Mexico and Uruguay coming up. So hopefully, um, you know, with Altador being out. Uh, we get a chance to see a young 19-year-old Josh Sargent um, get a chance to play striker for the U.S. because the U.S. really needs some help at striker. Uh, so I get excited when I see young players like him doing well. And, and Pulisic, I think, has been doing well for, for Chelsea in the Premier League. So, um, you know, it's hard to get too hyped up for the national team after the disaster. That was the uh, the last the last uh, World Cup qualifying cycle. But um, I'm starting to, to get on the hype train with guys like Josh Sargent and, and Pulisic again. Um, but if you haven't seen that goal, check it out. And I, I don't have anything to mention this week. I don't have any final thoughts. I, last week I kind of brought up Taylor Swift. I'm really running out of uh, things to throw out at the end of uh, at, at the end of the podcast. So, uh, but yeah, the Josh Sargent goal, as you mentioned, a phenomenal goal. Um, I, you sent it to me before we started recording. I, I, my initial reaction was, um, you know, that, that looks like a kind of an accident, uh, but his reactions and his reflexes are something else there. So um, Josh, Josh Sargent better than uh, Giassi Zardes? I'm just going to throw that out there. So uh, uh, I, I certainly hope so. That would be quite disappointing if he does not end up better than Giassi Zardes. <laughs> uh, Sean, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at Sean L. Donahue. 
All right. And you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap and also like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Uh, please also, if you could, leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you are listening. Uh, the Revs go on the road next week, as we mentioned, for a Saturday afternoon matchup against New York City FC in Yankee Stadium. Uh, NYC FC has a solid home record of 8-1-4, and four, only lost one time this season. So it'll be a bit of a difficult matchup for the revolution. Uh, I think that's a game that they're happy if they can take a point, uh, but maybe they have some magic like they did last year, some Brad Friedel magic and take all three points. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new podcast to break it all down. But until then, thank you all for listening and go reps. Everybody in your crew identifies as either big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.